Our scripture lesson this morning comes from 1 John 1. 1 John 1, and we're going to be reading the first four verses, although the, scripture, or the sermon text is just the first verse. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Amen. Dear saints, you may be seated. Today we're beginning a brand new series in the short New Testament book of First John. My only two prior forays into this tome were on April 9, 1989 and July 22, 1990. So over 33 plus years of ministry here, that's the entirety of my preaching from First John. So the big question of the day is, does Ken Goins, Cindy Winter, Leslie Henninger, and Christy Eskridge remember what I preached back then? Okay, they don't, well I don't either, so you're in good shape. I'd have to go back onto some hard copies, that was back in the pre-computer days used to handwrite out all those sermons. Well, there's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, not only for this particular sermon do we pray, but for this entire series, if you give it to us. As Leslie and I look to two months and so many, or two years and so many months until retirement, we don't know if that will lend itself to the finishing of this book or how that's going to work. But we pray that you would get all the glory. And we know that every word, every jot, every tittle, every thing in the holy book points us to Jesus. And we thank you in his name. Amen. I do want you to know, too, that we're, my plan is to crawl out of the gate of First John. So I expect that we'll have three sermons that will cover only the first four verses. We'll do a little recapitulation as we go. But then after that, I promise we'll move a little faster or you'll have me for the pastor for the next 20 years. And I think uh, you'll need somebody younger by that time. So let's talk a little bit of the introduction items regarding the book of First John. It was written by the Apostle John, who was known as the Apostle of Love, the one who's particularly close to Jesus, the one who assigned the title to himself, the apostle, or the, the man, the disciple that Christ loved. Not that he didn't love the others, but he had a very close relationship with John, the Lord Jesus did. He was in that inner circle of Peter, John, and James. And so this man really had a lot of revelation, a lot of grace, a lot of glory uh, to share and experience and and make a way for us to have um, uh, much revelation and glory from God. Now, some scholars believe that 1 John was penned late in John's life. Now, 
The historians, the early church historians, tell us that the Apostle John lived to a full, long life. He was one of the 11 faithful apostles, not counting Judas, of course, who wasn't martyred sometime along the line. He apparently lived a full life. He lived in Ephesus, was a member of the church there, and a lot of scholars believe that 1 John was written late in John's life, in the 90s of the first century. And that's very possible. And if you know my theological history, I used to think that all the Bible books of the New Testament were written before 70 AD, but I've changed my mind on that. I actually do believe, for instance, that the Gospel of John was written late in the Apostle's life. I think he knew the other three synoptics. He didn't need to talk about the destruction of Jerusalem. And he had to bring us some extra grace and wonderful glory in that Gospel of John. I do believe that. And you know from our Revelation series that I definitely believe that the book of Revelation, which was written by the Apostle John, was written before 70 AD. The whole book's interpretation depends on the dating of the book, and I put it there. Now, for similar reasons, at this point, and this could change as we go, and of course we we learn and grow, we stay open to what the Holy Spirit and the Word of God is going to show us as we go through a series. At this point, I tend to think that 1 John might have been an earlier book of the Apostle, and I base that conclusion, even though not with a great degree of adamancy, on the fact that 1 John 2:18 and 22 reference the, quote, Antichrist who was to come. So if we make the association between Antichrist and the events that led up to 70 A.D. and the destruction of Jerusalem, if that's the case, then surely this book was written before 70 A.D. But it could be granted that these antichrists took different forms, especially those of heretics. Now, 1 John is classed in the New Testament canon among those books we call Catholic or universal or general. So if you ever hear the term Catholic epistle, it doesn't mean Roman Catholic, but it does mean that the book was written to the church generally, the whole church, and not to a particular parish, as in the many examples of Paul's letters to Rome, Thessalonica, Corinth, Philippi, etc. So clearly, like 1 Peter, 2 Peter, Jude, it is what we call a Catholic epistle, and it definitely has relevance for us today. Now, the Apostle John was an interesting man because He's known as the Apostle of Love, but Jesus himself named he and his brother James the Sons of Thunder. Because, boy, they were loving, but they were strong. They're the type of pastor you want to have as your friend, but you don't want him as your enemy. And John was definitely a son of thunder as well as a pastor and apostle of love. And in this little tome, John violently lambastes the early Gnostic heresy that we call docetism. And docetism was a form, early form of Gnosticism 
that taught that Jesus, yes, he showed up, but he just appeared to be a man. He wasn't actually flesh and bones. It just looked like he was. That's what docet means, it's appearance. So docetism is addressed very strongly and harshly in this book by the Apostle of Love. Now, there's in the ESV, and I'm sure this is true in your other versions, Old King James, New King James, New American Standard, other uh, good versions that you might have. But in the ESV, the word loved or its cognates, which are related words like loved or loves or beloved, appears an astonishing 50 times in the 105 verses that make up the five chapters of 1 John. We don't have to be great mathematicians to figure out that's almost every other verse. The word loved or a related term is found in this book. Now, they're not all positive. For instance, we're told, do not love the world, etc. But almost all of them, other than that, are positive. So that says a lot about this book. In light of that, let's make it our goal this Sabbath day to grow to love God more through our faith union with Jesus Christ, looking together at just one verse, 1 John 1.1. A lot of ones there. Introduction to 1 John. We start the outline here. The doctrine, 1 John celebrates... God's greatest gift of love, Jesus Christ. When the Bible or the faithful church, the humble church, the believing church, talks about love, either the Bible or we are always primarily making reference to the person of Jesus Christ who is love personified. He's the very embodiment of love. There is no love aside from him. Now, through our Messiah and in connection with our Messiah, every other subordinate form of legitimate love flows. Every one. Whether it's in believers, non-believers, all true love of any sort finds its locus and source in the person of love, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, the Beatles had good theology. Did you know that? I know you don't believe it, but sometimes they did. One time they said, all you need is love. They were right! But their theology was only right so much as it attached us to the ultimate and only object of love, the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man, redeemer of God's elect church. First John celebrates God's greatest gift of love, Jesus Christ. First, this book is the Apostle's effort to represent the Messiah to his church. And that's exactly right. What the Apostle's doing is he's reintroducing the faithful church to her Savior again because they had been accosted by Gnostic heresies who had tried to draw them away from the true Messiah. I'll tell you, heresy is not a good thing. And God deals very, very, very strongly with it. And we're going to see a lot of that in this book. So, I draw this conclusion 
that the Apostle's effort is to represent the Messiah to his church from the very first words that flow from John's pen, some of which we're going to be studying here this morning, Lord willing. Now, just like all the other Bible writers, Old Testament knew, John was not interested in directing people to something beyond God's Christ, the Lord Jesus. He wasn't interested in saying, oh, there's this thing over here, there's this law, there's this way of living, 10 ways to be happy, 15 ways to make money, 18 ways to never die. None of that. He was only interested in directing people to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and get our eyes back on him. Now, the way John would do this, and if you want to take these down, I think I have four really cogent points for you that are going to be brought out throughout the book. First, he he does it through a reaffirmation of personal and ecclesiastical history. So he's basically saying, here's the history of the world, the history of the church, of God, of Christ, that matters. Here it is. Second, he does it through encouragement for the saints to refine their solace and forgiveness in Jesus alone and not be swayed by the heretics. Thirdly, he does this through very strong correction and rebuking of heretical error. He's not easy on it at all. And finally, he does it through good old-fashioned pastoral exhortation to love God and each other in the context of the church. Now, John does speak about the, quote, world quite a bit in this book. I think it's chapter 2, Do Not Love the World. And then there's other parts, chapter 5. But John's not afraid of the world. John has no fear of the world. And it's not just because Jesus may have promised him in John 21 that he wasn't going to get martyred. He just didn't fear the world. And he didn't want the church fearing the world either because the church is more powerful than the world and the world has no authority or power over us. And in his very famous and beautiful words of 1 John 5, 4, one of my favorite verses in all the Bible, he tells us that the faith of Christian churchmen overcomes the world. So the only way we overcome the world is through our living faith, gospel faith in Jesus. And John knew, just like every other truly called minister of the gospel in the church in any era, that love for God, or lack thereof, was really the determining factor in everything. And it really is. It's love for God, or lack thereof, that determines everything. This book is the Apostle's effort to represent the Messiah to his church so that we grow to cherish, C-H-E-R-I-S-H, cherish him and his people even more. Now, I've mentioned this, but take note that John will very forcefully drive home the point that it is impossible to love God without also loving his faithful church members. I guess I didn't mention that. But that's found, for instance, in 1 John 3.23. So he makes the argument that you can't love God without loving the faithful church, the people who are faithful in the body, the outward visible body of Christ, who keep by God's miraculous grace the vows and commitments that we heard here this morning. Because most people can't do it, and no one can do it. It's impossible. It takes a miracle. That's why people make those vows, and most of them don't keep them. But you here today, among many of you, have that grace upon you and been able to do that. 
And even though this letter is extremely harsh toward God's enemies, it also is very correspondingly tender and gentle toward God's precious church children who continue to struggle with sin down here. And he's going to talk about sin. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. If we say we have no sin, we make God a liar. So he doesn't set up a, a, a false world of perfection, but he does set up a perfect savior of perfection for us to look to and find our full justification in. So it's a beautiful thing. After all, since love is everything in religion and everything else, and since Jesus alone is love and the embodiment and only source of it, then it makes perfectly good sense that John would focus the church in every age, including ours, onto this absolute goal of the love of God in the actual, real, and historical person of the second person of the Holy Trinity, Jesus Christ, his Son, our Lord. That's the goal, not just the first John, all the Bible, and all of life, and all of creation is directing us in that way as well. As we read this book, and it's very short, you can go home this afternoon if you want, read the five chapters in, I don't know, 20 minutes or so, maybe a little more. We're going to be struck by its gentleness toward those who love God in Christ, even though they struggle, and its severity toward the heretics and others who would self-consciously seek to hurt the church and the saints within her. This man as in the case of all faithful pastors, was somebody he didn't want to have to deal with. He shows himself to be an excellent shepherd of God's church sheep. He knew how to use the rod and the staff and to beat the wolves off the church. Let's look at verse 1. This is really interesting. We're just going to look at one verse, start our series today in the exegetical section. And marvel at the ways we came to know our Lord Jesus. Now it's intriguing that John launches this epistle in this fashion. Remember, he's writing to believers, real Christians, real people that were real members of churches. Not writing a letter of just uh, evangelism or something, nothing wrong with that. But these were real, actual Christian church members. And he reminds them of how they and we began our process of comprehending our Savior. So let's now take careful note of the ways we came to know our Lord Jesus. First, through hearing him preached to us, verse 1a, which is what's happening right now, one of the three great means of grace. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard. Now, this is interesting. Notice that word heard. Because John, I found this out, I should have known this, but didn't find it out till this week when I was studying for this sermon. Did you know, unless my source is wrong, and I don't think it is, that John was the first cousin of the Lord Jesus Christ by familial relationship? John's mother, whose name I don't recall right now, was the sister of Mary, the mother of our Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Wish I had a... Ver- uh, well, I'll give you Matthew 4.21. This is the point about Matthew 4.21, is that even though John and Jesus and those families like we have here today, families come together for a joyful event, 
aunts, uncles, cousins come together, celebrate. Uh, I can imagine that Jesus' uh, earthly family and his half-brothers and half-sisters with Mary and Joseph may have met with John and his family various times. But what I'm arguing is that John never knew Jesus Christ to be the Redeemer, i.e., after he was christened the Christ in the Gospel accounts where he was baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River with the water being poured on his head, the proper form of baptism, which christened him as the Christ. The Holy Spirit came upon him. And John heard of him after that. And that's the Matthew 4.21 text. So I'm not saying that John didn't know Jesus before his um, christening. And I'm not saying that Jesus wasn't the Christ, but I'm saying that he took upon his ministry, he took it upon himself at that point of his baptism when he was identified with his church in that special way. So that's just an important thing. And then after that, John hears about Jesus. So... It's the hearing part that is really important. There's, if through the Holy Spirit's miraculous work and power we don't hear that which was from the beginning, which may be understood as he who was from the beginning, then it's impossible for us to know him who was from the beginning. Now, I don't mean to be misunderstood by that comment. I'm not suggesting that um, babies who die in the, in the womb or that people are severely mentally handicapped or something like that, or people that just can't hear, aren't eligible to be saved. I don't mean that. I'm just saying that there's a sense in which the word hearing is always associated with the gospel itself. And so everyone who's born again is is regenerated before we affirm faith in Christ anyway. Holy Spirit has to do that. And that's pretty much what I'm referring to. But it is important that we hear the gospel. And if we are in a culture where it's being preached, we must hear it or else show ourselves to be false Christians or not believers at all, just hypocrites. So this is why the Bible, particularly the New Testament, stresses the preaching of the Christ of the gospel so much over and over. For instance, in Romans chapter 10, where in verse 17 we're reminded that faith doesn't come by what we see, like miracles and things, but faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And the Word of God has at least three forms. It's got the written Word, the preached Word, and the ultimate Word, the incarnate Word, the Logos, Jesus Christ. And the word Logos is used here in verse 1. The same word that we find in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, etc. And God created all things through the Logos. So keep all of that in mind. So John opens his epistle with a pointed emphasis on hearing, which corresponds obviously with preaching. He does that again with these words, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard. Now one of the several important reasons that the Apostle does this and says this about hearing first is because it, he understood that the recipients of this letter of his probably, you can't say for sure, it sort of depends on the dating of the letter, but 
probably never actually saw Jesus Christ with their visible uh, flesh eyes, okay? Uh, Maybe in some cases, but probably not. And he wanted to assure his hearers, or the recipients of his letter, and us today, that their faith and our faith could be just as perfectly established as his was, even though he leaned against Jesus at the Last Supper. He was close to Jesus. He saw him, but he's saying, your faith can be just as established as mine is through hearing this eternal, always relevant, powerful gospel preaching from faithful pulpits in faithful churches on Sunday, the New Covenant Resurrection Sabbath day. The ways we came to know our Lord Jesus through hearing him preach to us and through seeing him vicariously via historical witnesses, verse 1b. Now, children, vicariously means through the eyes of others. Let's read that phrase, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands. Now, John takes the trustworthiness of our Christian faith's truth claim to the very next, very critically important level. So he's ratcheting it up here, okay? He starts with the all-important doctrine of hearing and preaching. Now he's taking it to the fact that there were reliable historical witnesses who saw, observed, and touched God's word of life, who's referenced here in verse 1, and that our Christian testimony's historical validation, get this now, very important, especially you young people, but all of us, our Christian testimony's historical validation depends entirely upon their the witnesses, palpable, felt, real experience, interaction with the living Messiah. Did you get that? Your faith is a historical faith. It's based on the faithful, reliable testimony of historical and true witnesses, most of whom gave their lives for this gospel. John was one who apparently lived to an old age. But that doesn't mean he was any less faithful. Therefore, from the very first verse of this first John letter, the Apostle John is establishing the concrete factuality of the true church's Christian faith, while at the same time he is inaugurating his big assault upon the Gnostic docetists. So he does both of those at the same time. He's establishing the faith of the church, and he's destroying the enemies of the church, wiping them out and obliterating their doctrine. And he does it in a beautiful way. Now, these words of sensory palpable perception here in verse 1b, which we just read, which we have seen with our eyes, looked upon, touched, etc., are very significant. John says that Christ was seen with real eyes, gazed upon with real intentionality, and touched with real hands. Now, there's none of us in this world are going to experience that, are we? No. And in fact, probably none or hardly any of John's audience was around Jesus before his ascension to experience it either, depending, I suppose, on the date of the letter. But... 
Some people were, and the Apostle John was one of them, and he is a reliable witness. Now, the Gnostics of the first century, just like the skeptics of the 21st century, like to ask us Christian churchmen, how do you know that your Christ lived, died, rose again, and ascended into heaven? And a big part, I'm not saying the only part, but a very major section of the answer and response we have is because our faithful brothers in our church saw him, beheld him, and touched him, and we trust their testimony. And we do, and we should. The ways we came to know our Lord Jesus through hearing him preach, through seeing him vicariously via historical witnesses, and finally through abiding in him who himself is our life, verse 1c. Concerning the word of life, really I think points 2a and b above would in truth not be quite enough without this point c, that affirms that Jesus Christ is indeed the, quote, word of life. When God created the universe, way back there, and Elder Wayne read that text for us, remember? Genesis 1.1. When God created the universe, he did it through his word, Christ, the second person of the Holy Trinity. Now, did he use... Verbalization, rhema in the Greek, yes. Hebrews 11.6, he did. But he did it through his word, the word capital W, the logos, Jesus Christ. When God recreates a soul and makes a new person out of a dead, old, lost, sinful person without hope and without purpose and without meaning and without life, and he makes a new creature... He does it through his word, the second person of the Holy Trinity, the very one who shed his precious blood for sinners and who rose from the dead to secure the full, complete, absolute, and clean justification of all his elect and redeemed people who now constitute his true church. The Holy Spirit applies Christ's atonement to our hearts, and the Heavenly Father accepts us in Jesus Christ as perfectly righteous. How good is that, Gears? You're not going to hear anything better than that, ever. The Holy Father accepts us as perfectly righteous in Christ. When you think of the word of life, what or who do you think of? Biblically speaking and properly speaking, the word of life is our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord Jesus Christ is revealed to us through the word preached. That's a form of the word. And all gospel church Sabbath preaching is always based in and on the written word, which is our authoritative body of doctrine, the only rule of faith and practice. And that is the perfect pattern for the church. And we see it right here in 1 John. Isn't that beautiful? See it everywhere else, too. In the initial verse of chapter 1 of 1 John. Let's do a little more application this morning and understand together why 1 John will again build up God's redeemed church. Why do we say it will again? Because... 
God cannot and will not fail at edifying his chosen and forgiven church. But there's more to this reason than the simple fact that Almighty God is not capable of failure. I would say the biggest cause has to do with his character as the supremely loving being. And did I not say that that word loved or its cognates are used 50 times in this book? Let's consider why 1 John will again build up God's redeemed church. First, because it directs us to our Father's heart. You know, 1 John is a particularly exemplary model of what is actually true of all the rest of the scriptures, Old Testament and New, and that is that it aims all of us true believers, and everyone else for that matter, right at what most concerns God, our Heavenly Father, and that is love. But not just anything that passes for love, and certainly not the world's false forms of love, which are all gross imitations. Instead, God is passionate about real love. And this love is found exclusively in His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. All true love flows from Him. If you want to be built up in your faith, or you desire to grow into everything God ever wanted you to be, then you must be connected to the Christ of love. Otherwise, you will always be a dry branch and a dead root. There'll be nothing of life in you whatsoever. It's all about Jesus, dears. It's all about Him. That's what the gospel is. We have no other alternative than to be found in Christ. But there is one grace that logically and theologically precedes love, and that's the humble grace of faith. Because no one loves God without being given by God the gift of faith. Hebrews 2 or Ephesians 2, 8, 9 is a good example of that. But anyone that wants faith, wants Christ, wants love, wants joy, wants peace, wants forgiveness, wants what's best, may have it. God denies no one what they want. But as recalcitrant, dead, lost, rebellious sinners, we only want hell, sin, death in our own way, which leads to damnation and frustration and ultimately despair. But for those who are called by God, it's a different story altogether. And when these virtues are properly lined up, and you've heard this many times from this pulpit, faith, love, obedience follows. That's how it works. And happy obedience or compliance to a father we love involves everything that we do in this world. Not just the most important thing like coming to church on Sunday, but everything that flows down into the valley of the rest of our life is affected by this pattern. Faith, love, obedience. Why First John will again build up God's redeemed church because it directs us to our Father's heart through a stress on divine love in and for Jesus Christ. Are you surprised that word showed up again? But I tell you, 50 times, there's 10 times a chapter. No wonder he was called the apostle of love. Any religion not based in and on real love is a false religion. And since Jesus Christ is love, any religion not totally consumed with him as he truly is, not as the heretics say he is, is a spurious religion. 
So I ask you, dears, is it possible to love God? Can dead, lost, hateful, hopeless sinners, can they love God? Can they go from hating Him to loving Him? Is it possible? Yes, it's possible, but this will only be evidence that that person is an object of God's electing love. Our responsibility is to hear that the first commandment is to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and being. And that's for everyone. And that commandment comes from Matthew twenty-two thirty-six through 38, the great commandment. The question is, can we love God? And the answer is yes. But the way that we can love God is through the person of Jesus Christ. The way to get to him is through simple faith, trust, believing this gospel. If you hear it and you accord with it, you believe it, you resonate in your heart, you're not pushing against it, you're an object of grace. If you believe it. And this faith will believe that Jesus Christ shed his precious blood for us and all our sins. And that when he rose from the dead, it validates, completes, certifies, and makes absolute our full and total, comprehensive justification, righteousness, and perfect standing with God. Does it get any better, dears? Introduction to 1 John. Believe it or not, it's a segue into a great new world, if you will. I would say it's even going to get better. That's exciting. In Jesus Christ, let's take full advantage of, even now, the introduction to First John. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this introduction. Very first verse of this book. Sometimes we look at this book, I remember in the college days, we, we thought of it as just the simplest book. The one that we would all look at together as just brand new believers and think we are learning things. And we were. But in truth, it is simple, but it's incredibly profound. We thank you that it is both. That it reaches all the Christians at every level, wherever we are. We pray now that this sermon and this series will bless your church here and around the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.